Okay. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Don Don Derry, and he just published a book, March 2022. Title of the book is Truth, Lies, and ETs, How We Stumbled Into the Universe. And I've done a number of other interviews about UFOs, the subject of UFOs. So you can go back through William Ramsey Investigates and check those out. One was The UFO People. The author was uh, MJ Benias. And then I had Ralph Blumenthal and his recent book, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. John Mack is mentioned in this book as well, and some of the phenomenon Mack studied as well. Um, but Don Don Derry, this is not his first book. He's, he has a long academic career. He's also written another book on UFOs. title of that is UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abductions, A Scientist Looks at the Evidence. And then he is a has a doctorate at, from Cornell in experimental psychology. So he has a number of books on psychology. One is Psychology, the Science of Mind and Behavior. Don Dondary entered the University of Chicago at 15 and graduated with a BA at 18 and has a B Bachelor's of Science in Biological Psychology at 21. He began his professional career as a research psychologist with IBM, where he helped to develop radar navigation displays for the B-52 bomber. And then after he graduated with a PhD from Cornell, he joined the Faculty of Science at McGill University, where he taught undergraduate psychology, trained PhD students, and served as Associate Dean of the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research. He's written over 100 basic research papers and technical reports dealing with the science of human visual perception and memory, co-authored one textbook and edited another. He also co-founded an ergonomics consulting company in 1982. He's carried out applied research and development projects for private and government clients on topics that include flight instrumentation, flight simulation, marine navigation in ocean and Arctic environments, nuclear power, plant safety, and chemical process engineering. His entire professional career has been in the mainstream of science and engineering. He's a dual American-Canadian citizen, speaks English and French, and lives French and lives in Montreal. But again, we're going to discuss this very interesting book. Title is, again, Truth and Lies and ETs, How We Stumbled Into the Universe. So, Don, Don Derry, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I much appreciate it. Great. So, for people, you have a long background. Can you kind of talk about how you got interest in the field of UFOs and what led you to write uh, your books about the subject? Absolutely. Most of my research career has been spent studying human visual perception and memory. So, what do we do when we learn about the world? We hear it, but that's somebody else's business, my friend Al Bregman's, but that's another matter. We see it, and then we remember it, and we use the visual information that we get, among other things, to construct the world that we know and to modify it and improve it. It's been my research interest since I started doing research, which was about 1962, after graduating. And in about 1965, some of you may remember, uh, the U.S., as well as the rest of the world, was... uh, a wash in UFO sightings, if that's not the right metaphor. At any rate, I was a scientist working at a university. I looked at the evidence. This was human visual perception evidence, most of it. Much of it was instrumental evidence that went along with the visual perception. Uh, people taking video camera pictures, people taking photographs, people reporting blobs on radar, which they then saw in the real world, and so forth and so on. And what was, quote, science doing at this time? Science was debunking UFOs. 
the people who were asked in the professions, more or less, the academic professions, took it uh, with a gra- not with a grain of salt. They laughed at it, basically. This was a ludicrous mistake on the part of most people who were seeing things that they were imagining or imagining things that they were seeing. And we were not to take it seriously because there was nothing here. And at that point, that was the public opinion, or a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. And that both intrigued me and uh, also made me realize that I hadn't seen a UFO, but there were lots of people who had. And not all of these people were either uh, malign, trying to get something out of this, or stupid, or credulous. They were observers. And observers, and I studied observers in the laboratory, uh, were not that unreliable. And there's a great deal of evidence, and a great deal of evidence is used in ordinary life that people present that you count on. And I realized that this was a phenomenon that didn't, that shouldn't be ignored by the science I was in, in particular, which was visual perception research. And so I began to take it seriously. And I let my colleagues know I was taking it seriously. I didn't become a crusader, but I published a couple of articles, not uh, big papers or books. And so it was known in my trade, in my university, and among some of the professionals I worked with. At the time, I was working with an organization called the Pulp and Paper Research Institute of Canada. Now, if that doesn't sound pretty down to earth, nothing does. They they were the research people who figured out how to make better paper and had the printing stuff on it look better. And I had done some statistical research that helped that printing business. So I was invited by them to become a so-called faculty associate. I worked with them. I went to their labs a couple of times a week. I And I published a UFO article in their monthly magazine. So I was published on the subject while I was an academic at McGill. After I started publishing, I got tenure which proves McGill wasn't about to kick me out for having this unorthodox idea. And I should add, at this point, at this point, I was uh, over 25, put it that way, as a grown-up, and I had a PhD and all that. But my first exposure to UFOs was when I was a kid in 1947. Uh, Your listeners can figure out how old I am. I was 10 in 1947. And at that point, UFOs began to make the news in the United States. I was living in the U.S. at the time. That's where I grew up. And both in Life magazine, Look magazine, and on the radio and another place, you heard about the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting, the flying saucers over Washington, the uh, Roswell incident, the crashed UFO. So all of this was in the news when I was a boy, and I was intrigued by it. And then, of course, in 1965, some years later, I was equally intrigued. But by that time, I had credentials. I had published research in the area. And this is visual perception. This is my trade. I should get, uh, I should figure out why people, particularly scientists, are debunking this so vividly and so rapidly. And the fact is, they shouldn't have been. That's how I started. Thank you for asking. And from there, it wasn't me who started this. It was started back in about the time I was 10. The research began. I could go on a sense uh, enthralling or boring your blog. <laughs> Host, uh, your blog attendees, depending on how long you just wanted me to talk without shutting up. But the thing is, the phenomenon has been known to the public since 1947. It's been known to the government since 1947. And it has been largely, not exclusively, largely 
debunked and ridiculed by the scientific establishment for as long. And this is their explanations for this. My first book includes a good long section on why that was true. And my second book has in its title, Truth, Lies, and ETs, How We Stumbled Into the Universe. The lies part is a recapitulation of what mostly the U.S. government started doing in 1947, as soon as the first cases of the news. They started organized debunking to make sure that people didn't take this seriously. And so that's been going on. And fortunately for all of us, it stopped in 2017, as I think anybody interested in this subject knows. Because in 2017, on front page stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post, the videos that had been taken were released. And of course, they were immediately released to the uh, visual media as well. And so we now know that U.S. Navy pilots and their sensors saw and recorded UFOs flying in and among the active training going on both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, Atlantic Oceans. Uh, and that's been continuing since and has and went on for a long time before. So what you've just had from me is a five-minute summary of the fact that we're in a world that contains a phenomenon which people used to call UFOs, unidentified flying objects, which I call extraterrestrial vehicles, because that's basically what they are. And my interest has been in explicating why the data for these phenomena are valuable and real, and why they shouldn't be ignored. And I'm not the only person doing this, and I'm very glad that's true. Uh, but it's taken a while for this to break through, quote unquote, into what you might call the mainstream. And it's got there. And where it goes from It here, was just in the news this last week when Congress... Talking yeah, about UFOs, it is remarkable. I, I watched all of it. Yeah. It was interesting. It was serious. They took it seriously. Uh, they didn't tell us anything we, the people who'd written about this field, didn't already know. But they made a serious and, uh, and what you might call sincere introduction to the subject to the public, which was very good. I'm delighted. Couldn't have done better. I so it did change. People. The one they Changes. showed was not one of the best ones, but that's okay. Uh, we we know because all of the rest of us have seen the good ones. We've seen them downloaded time and time again on just about every visual medium available. So and you include think, snapshots of that in your book too. Some of those the the Fravor the Fravor Dietrich sightings of 2017 that oh, yeah, were released on 2017. They're in your book. So can you kind of talk, you go into detail of all of these cases, some that I was familiar with, maybe some of the more obvious ones, but some that really aren't. But these are different sightings in different places and times. But there is kind of similar visual memory that that they can remember, but also can remember through hypnotism. Can you kind of talk about uh, these experiencers' experiences? Well, there are different kinds of experiencers. A lot of people have seen UFOs. Fewer people have had the other kind of experience. And that word, experiencer, I don't know if you know this, but in the trade, and there are a lot of people seriously interested in both the, the extraterrestrial vehicles and the contact with extraterrestrials, which we haven't discussed. But that's an equally real part of the phenomenon. And let me just uh, segue into that for a bit. With the UFO sightings came from the very beginning and all of everybody, Every conspiracy theorist, every person who's ever watched a television drama knows that uh, 
they were aliens who were killed in a flying saucer crash in Roswell. Now, this was immediately denied, and the denials have persisted. Nobody talks about this in the official world. But the evidence assiduously studied by colleagues of mine who've done very good research on this is that there was a UFO crash at Roswell and that bodies of ETs were uh, taken from the wreckage. One of them was even alive. This is not my, I didn't figure this out. The guy named Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall figured this out a long time ago. And they pursued this vigorously. They have documented pages and pages of stuff about it. But the fact is not only have we been in contact with what started out to be called flying saucers, but we've been in contact directly with the critters who run them. And pardon me for using the word critter, that suggests something that's herded with a lasso in the West. It's not, these are intelligent beings who have technology far in advance of our own, and they are interested in us as much as we're, or more than we're interested in them. And what they do, and this is the, uh, I suppose, shocking part, not to me, and probably not to most of the people interested, they are interested enough in us that they fool around with us to be polite. They abduct us, they kidnap us, to use our word. They take us into their ETVs. They mess with our genetics, and they put us back again. And to shock your listeners and watchers more, as they probably already know or have heard intimated, they also, in the process, produce ET human hybrids who are the result of insemination of abducted women, kidnapped women, with human male sperm, which has been modified to create abilities in the offspring that humans do not have, in particular telepathy. So right, and you, th- you think that the... And I told it to you in 10 minutes. <laughs> but you think that they're at the UFOs, that is their communication skill is telepathy, not through verbal language. Right. Although they... You know. Absolutely. <laughs> they can, they can, it's not just telepathy, it's persuasive telepathy. It's telepathy that basically makes you do what they want you to do. I've talked to witnesses, and this is well known in the literature as well. Right, and you're saying that there are people existing now today on Earth who what you call hybrids. They're human extraterrestrial hybrids, correct? Let's give credit where credit is due. The guy who worked hardest on this and wrote the most about it was a fellow named David Jacobs. He was a friend of mine whose last, the best-known book is called Walking Among Us, and that's a book about this phenomenon. Now, if David had written the book and I'd never heard of David, that might be a little too much to take. But not only did I know David well and some of his sources, but I've met some of the people who went through this experience. They were described in David's book, and a few years ago I met the gentleman involved in England. He's a Brit. And uh, we spent, my wife and I, my late wife and I, spent the entire day in London with him and his partner. And we had a long discussion about this and other things. And the man, and this is where reality deviates from the skeptics' beliefs. Reality is that people of all kinds see and interact with ETs. And the people of all kinds include capitalists. They include highly skilled technocrats. And that is combined in the gentleman called Sean Allen in David's book, with whom my late wife and I spent an entire day in London. 
He is a medical instruments maker. He owns the company. He travels to sell the products. He has been abducted many times. This is part of it, this is in David's stories. Part of it was what he was talking to us about. And he's been uh, in and out of their lives as much as uh, they've been in and out of his. But it hasn't interfered with his daily life. He drove up to meet us on the uh, Thames Embankment in his Jaguar. He's done very well, thank you. And he's absolutely rooted and grounded in the real world while having had these experiences. And that's the fascinating thing about this. And, and are any of these, like for skeptics, are any of these, is there any tangible evidence other than their stories to validate well, this contact? My late friend, Bud Hopkins, also collected evidence of the forms of, of visual scars that the, that the, the abductees claimed had been uh, part of whatever testing procedure they were doing little scoop marks taken out of their skin and so forth and so on. And uh, kinds of implants. The implants were a little trickier. I've seen, as because they've been published for one thing, uh, pictures of nose implants in uh, some of Hopkins' books, and I've seen the original photographs, uh, the x-rays, I should say. But that's the most unlikely part of this. People kidnapped, I use that word, uh, interfered with uh, both biologically and sexually, and then put back again. And I've, it's not the only case I'm familiar with, right. uh, but uh, it's that kind of case. He's, that's the one person I'm most personally familiar with. I met one other abductee, a person called in one of Bud Hopkins' earlier books, uh, Linda Napolitani, whom I spent some time with, and who I basically sat through an abduction section with, uh, session with, in one of uh, Bud's hypnotic uh, episodes. The, the thing is, it's a ubiquitous phenomenon. We're being looked at the same way we look at and deal with other less capable species on this planet. Species that may be better at eating each other than we are. We're not doing a bad job now in Ukraine. Let's leave it, let's just go there for a moment. But uh, the relationship between extraterrestrials and humans is not unlike a semi-benign relationship between humans and some of the other species on this planet. Like a chimpanzee or something? That we we like, we put in zoos, we we study medically, we interfere with for our own purposes and sometimes their benefit and so forth and so on. So we're dealing with a set of of uh, intelligent beings who are technologically more capable than we are, who have not destroyed us as in some science fiction movie, but take a more than benevolent interest in us in the sense that they literally interfere with us while we're going about our daily business. And what their ultimate motives are, I haven't a clue. I don't pretend to know. But you definitely believe, and you've met, you've been in this studying this field for a long time and have met many different experiencers in different environments, right? Not just the UK. I also belong to an organization called the Mutual UFO Network, and I'm a part of what they call their experiencer resource team. And this is a group of people, mostly online, of course, uh, 20 or 30 people who take an interest in the people who've had these experiences. Some of them 
uh, some of the people who participate in this group, and not including myself, are licensed psychotherapists. And these are people who can deal with the trauma or professionally trained to deal with the trauma that results from the partial incomplete memories and bad dreams that go with these experiences. And these people, the experiencer resource people, take these problems very seriously, help as best they can, often online, not just because of the pandemic, but because it's a big country, uh, dealing with these problems that people have as a result of their partial memories. They sometimes, those partial memories can be recovered under hypnosis. Any skeptic will now say hypnosis. That's all, uh, that can be faked. You can, you can persuade people to think that what happened did happen, but it really didn't and so forth and so on. And there's some truth in that. Hypnosis is a very powerful tool. I'm not, even though I'm a research psychologist, I am not a licensed therapist. I don't know how to do hypnosis. And I respect the fact that if you do it, you have to be ethical, you have to be careful, and you have to be honest. If you're going to produce either therapy in your clients or reliable evidence for the world. And I think there are people in this organization who do both of those things. They are honest, they are reliable, they are skilled, and they are also valuable as therapists to their clients. I can't Why? say that for myself. I'm not a therapist. Right. So you're a researcher. That means like you're an academic psychologist. You're not among the field, right? Well, I'm not an academic psychologist anymore. For one thing, mm, I've been retired more. from the guild until nine. Well, I'm sorry. The second thing is, I've, I've been in business for a long time, and this was totally within the limits of McGill. I co-founded a consulting company that uses psychology in the interest of human engineering and systems. And I think your introduction indicated, which is correct, that I had, while a graduate student, worked at IBM on various government research projects involving radar, which is true. And from that beginning, I realized you could take what you might call applied psychology and put it to use. And during a sort of high inflation time in the 80s, after I'd been well-established at McGill for many years, two of us at McGill and two at the University of Toronto, uh, another big Canadian institution, uh, decided we'd get together. They were also doing the same kind of work in applied psychology. And we started a little consulting company, which is still going strong. I'm, I'm still with it. I'm not, I don't run it, but I was a co-founder of it. And you applied this, this American personality indicator to these people who've had this UFO experience, right? Oh, yeah. Thank Can you, you talk? That up. Yeah. That's another subject. It may get a bit esoteric, but a lot of people ask with reason, and any reasonable skeptic is entitled to ask, aren't these people making these stories up? Even if they're not doing it uh, with malice, aren't they simply fooling themselves about what's happened to them? Don't they have psychological problems that lead to these kinds of, thing, of feelings? And are they totally unrelated to anything extraterrestrial? A fair question. So, again, going back to my late friend, Bud Hopkins, he, I don't know if you know anything about him, and that's a digression. I just actually, the show, that the reason why I was three minutes late was I was doing a show on the Skinwalker Ranch yeah. that ran over and mentioned Bud Hopkins okay, well, and Bud John Hopkins Mack. was a very nice guy. He was a friend. He was a couple of years, oh, six years older than I was, a very well-known and successful New York painter and sculptor. Grew up in uh, West Virginia, uh, a good American, came to New York, became a city boy, got interested in UFOs because he saw one on Cape Cod 
this is all in his own uh, biography called art or autobiography called art life and ufos which he wrote some years ago but i met him at a conference and we became friends i stayed at a house a couple of times in new york helped him out met some of his abductee uh, clients so to speak and found him a very interesting and likable person i got into that only to say that bud had the idea and he got the cooperation of a, a guy named ted davis to put the, he was ted davis was a social worker i had nothing to do with the beginning of this he and davis put together a set of questions that they thought they could ask uh, abductees that included leading questions that might trigger the response that this guy was basically making it up or this girl was hallucinating this or something and they put this set of questions together in something they called the hopkins davis test and they gave it to a lot of this is all written down by the way it's in david it's in their books it's in my book they gave this test to people who had they first of all they started out wondering if they could get some professional help bud was interested in the abductions he ended up talking to a lot of abductees were these abductees crazy could he get any help in figuring out by professionals whether they were or weren't so he contacted professionals in the city new york city area and he got the professionals to interview these people without some of them without telling them what they were being interviewed for uh he gave as an excuse to the uh, psychologists that they were doing tests on uh, creativity and so would you please interview and analyze the psychology of these people who we I think are creatives and are interested in comparing with others and they did this and they got the psychologists to point out again this is all written down that these people were normal of high intelligence or better than average intelligence that the one thing they had in common was anxiety and distrust of people but that they weren't in any sense crazy and this was all done with clinical observations and this big test they developed so what i did i was at mcgill and I, and i had access as a researcher to what you might call subject pools these are both the, the people willing to participate in experiments often just out of the goodness of their hearts and secondly i had access to the students who can gain course credit by carrying out the research so i was in a great position help with what you might call validating this test so again uh, for your listeners and again i apologize for boring you with the academic details no this is very important this is great this is great you intended to listen so what the heck um i got a whole bunch of people together with my undergraduate researchers and i found samples of both adults because i got them to solicit their family and friends and college age people and i had three groups of people one group we told this is a personality test we're developing we're lying to them of course we just wanted you to fill it out like ordinary people and uh we'll basically uh, use your results to help validate the test another group of people we told this is a we're actually developing a test to detect uh people who claim to be abducted but we don't think anybody has been we want you to take this test and pretend to be abducted take the test 
and act and, and answer the questions, true-false questions, as you think an abductee, somebody who's been abducted by aliens, would answer it. And then they gave the test to other people who had been abducted by aliens, if you want to put it that way, or claimed they had, and we had no reason to think they weren't. And these were not the people that had originally been studied by Davis and Hopkins, but by other people. I was also aided by people in this group called MUFON to do this. So we had three groups of people. We had people we asked to take the test as ordinary people. We had no reason to think they had any experience with abductions or ETs. We had a group of people we asked to fake the test. And we had a group of people who we had reason to believe uh, might have been abducted, but we didn't tell them anything about the test other than please take this, it's part of our survey work. And then I know how to analyze these data. We analyzed the data. The data showed distinct differences among all three groups. You could tell the fake abductees from the real abductees and from the controls. That's all published it's in the record. Right. And I had a lot of help from my McGill undergraduates and, and uh, local people in the Montreal area, far from New York as well. And that's on the record. So, right. So you have that in the book. The graph clearly shows these are distinct. They're not overlapping clear. groups, right? You may have and seen these. They've been published before. And, the, the, and the, the work has been published in journals as well. Right. And that's not the only thing, because you did a, something that you're claiming the UFOs have is telepathy. You also state in your book, you did a study and proved that telepathy can happen between humans, right? Uh, well, telepathy can happen between humans. I've done some research on it. Uh, I mean, again, I'm a, a, not a total exotic in the research line because I have had a very stable, stable career and I work with people who couldn't care less about that stuff. But I have done, I published one paper with an, a graduate student uh, demonstrating telepathy in a McGill University laboratory. But I'm not the only one. Telepathy is one of those subjects that's barely inside science, if you want to put it that way. But it has a long and respectable career. People have been interested in that kind of thing for centuries. And they became very interested in the late 19th century when this became a bigger thing in, uh, in the area that was studied by psychologists. William James was interested. Right. Well-known varieties of religious experience, right? right? His book was Varieties of Religious Experience, if yes, I remember correctly. Exactly. And he was really the precursor to all psychologists, actually. And he was involved in all kinds of spiritual research, but he influenced Freud, all those people, yeah. You're absolutely right. So thank you. You're taking over. You give the rest of the lecture. <laughs> I just know that. But I've also interviewed a guy from the Noetic Institute, so they're involved in uh, telepathy. They've proved telepathy, believe they've proved telepathy as well. So yeah. other people are in a separate environment than you are working on that as well. I unfortunately have to kind of wrap this up. Where's the best? I mean, really fascinating discussion and great book. Where's the best place for people to get your book? There's a lot more left in this book. You include a lot of case studies, truth, lies, and ETs, how we stumbled into the universe. Where's the best place to get it? Amazon.com. And do you have, uh, Don, do you have social media or contact information if anybody wants to reach out? My website is ufoets.com. UFO ETS. I'll put that in the show notes okay, so that people can uh, reach out to you. UFO ETS.com. Right. Awesome. And again, author's name is Don Don Derry. Title of the book, Truth, Lies, and ETs, How We Stumbled Into the Universe. Really fascinating. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.